And during the retreat, one of the themes that always comes up is the last things, you know, death and dying. And uh, the reason for that is uh, to try to put yourself in the place of somebody who might have only days or weeks, maybe even hours left. If I had limited time, how would I reprioritize my life that I would place what truly is most important first? Welcome to Inside Out, the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. As you can probably tell from the title, today's episode is a little different. I know the title sounds a bit heavy and might not fit so squarely in the hashtag inspiration vibe of our regular episodes, but I think this is one that everyone needs to hear. I had the chance to sit down with Dr. John Ree, who's a neurology resident at Mass General Brigham at Harvard Medical School. Among other things, he's fascinated by death and dying, and he's written a lot about end-of-life care, physician-assisted suicide, and about loneliness at hospitals in the time of COVID. And trust me, it's not as grim as it sounds. John is probably one of the kindest people you would ever meet and one of the smiliest people I know. In this episode, we talk about how John got over his fear of death by volunteering at a hospice, how his college courses in human development and policy tie into his work, and why he's so passionate about end-of-life care. We dive into pretty deep topics about what human flourishing could look like at a hospital and how our society thinks about death, dying, and the sick and elderly. John also cares deeply about helping other medical residents ground their practice in their values and ideals, which led him to co-found a podcast for medical students called the Hippocratic Forum. There's a lot to dive into today, so I'm going to leave the intro short and introduce you to John. Here's him talking about his childhood. So my parents immigrated from Korea in 88, and I was born in 1990. And so um, my dad was a an electrical engineer in Korea. My mom had studied interior design, um, but when they had come over, uh, their their English wasn't very good, and also um, they their degrees didn't really like count at the time. And so um, they ended up working uh, with my aunt in a business venture, um, doing frozen seafood. Um, but the initial years, I remember being very tough uh, for the family because. My dad was working a lot of hours. And at the time before they started the business venture, he was working minimum wage and, and in a um, in one of these like seafood uh, markets. Um, that's where he like learned the trade and then started his own business with his sister, uh, my aunt who had come here a few years before then. Um, and so we all lived in the same small, uh, it was a two-story apartment building. And so I lived with my cousins and there was not really like a barrier between the upstairs and downstairs. So we were always just like all together. I remember just being part of a very big family since my aunt's family, uh, our family, and then uh, another one of my aunts, because my dad had uh, four sisters. One of them passed away when he was younger, but uh, three sisters and two of them ended up coming to live in, in Queens. So um, just having like a, a people always around and, and things like that. And then we ended up moving to New Jersey uh, when I was in around second grade. Up until that point, uh, my grandma was also like a very big part of my life since we lived together. Um, and she basically brought me up because my parents were working a lot. 
Um, but then when we went to New Jersey, uh, she didn't come with us. And I remember mm -hmm. that being like devastating for my second year old self because I was so close with her. Uh, and I remember the night before leaving because I she, she took care of me so much so that like I slept in the same bed with her. I remember the night before I couldn't fall asleep because I was thinking like, oh, this is when I move away from my grandma. But, uh, you know, obviously it was okay. <laughs> and we still kept in very close touch and it wasn't that far. I mean, and so then we moved to Jersey and then that's where I uh, kind of grew up. I grew up for, for the rest of grade school and then I went to Cornell for college. Um, in terms of music, yeah, music was a big part of my life growing up. Um, my mom actually started me playing piano when I was just turned three years old. And so from a super young age, because it was so young, I kind of rebelled a little bit. And so there was a point where I think I enjoyed it. And then I kind of refused to learn. <laughs> so I wish I hadn't done that because then I would be much better now. Then actually, I remember one of my earliest memories is actually uh, that my piano teacher at the time would organize uh, concerts for her students. Um, I would walk onto stage. And because I was so small uh, and so young, I couldn't actually get onto the piano stool. And so I would always have to get up there and then just stand there and look around until somebody else came up on stage and then pulled me up and, and oh put me God. on the stool. And then I would like play. And then somebody else would have to come back up at the end, kind of take me off the piano stool uh, because I was too small. I was also small for my age too. So, um, but yeah, but because of that, it was, you know, it was uh, piano was like a big part of my life then. And it was only later that I got into cello. In, in like fifth grade or so when I wanted to try an instrument that I chose for myself. So I think because of that cello ended up being this like very big uh, hobby in, in middle and high school, I ended up uh, at any point being part of like three different either orchestras or chamber groups in high school. And and, and also growing up, my, my mom was, uh, is, I guess, very musically talented. She was part of the church choir and she plays guitar. She also plays piano. And so um, growing up, we would always be, you know, kind of hearing her play music um, for fun and or singing, and we would always join in. And so there was a lot of music around the house growing up as well. That's really quite special to have such a musical household. The grandma thing you and I have in common. My grandma came to Canada to help raise my brother and sister uh, while they were growing up, and we actually shared a bed too. Uh, I remember she would you know, walk me to and from school. We'd play badminton together. It was a lot of fun. It's it's really nice having a grandparent around. No, it's definitely true. I Yeah, I remember um, even after moving to New Jersey, my, my favorite days were when um, she would come with by surprise, you know, she wouldn't tell us before she was coming and then coming out of school, um, you know, you're, there was a system where you couldn't leave the school unless the teacher saw that your parent was there and then you could go with them. Um, but then uh, sometimes my grandma would just show up and then uh, then it would be, you know, I'd run up to her, give her a hug, and then she would take my hand and we would walk home. Man, gotta love grandmas. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned later on you ended up going to Cornell. Tell me a bit about that experience. How'd you end up at Cornell? Um, so when I was applying to colleges, um, it's kind of like, a, <laughs> thinking back on it now, it's very silly, but um, at the time, my parents hadn't gone to college here, and so we had no idea what a good college was, and so uh, basically when I was applying, 
Uh, I applied to places that they told me were good places, which is places that are just like known in Korea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, so that's how my college application went. Um, so I didn't actually even know that much about Cornell, but I just applied because it was something that my parents had said that they had heard of. <laughs> so, and then I, I ended up like with, with doing some research, learning a little bit more about it. And I, I, I thought that it was like a, uh, interesting had an interesting mission uh, in the sense that it was their their kind of motto is like that any student any study and so they they have like I don't know like hundreds of majors uh, you could choose from um, because it's like a pretty large school and so I like that idea at the time I didn't really know what I wanted to study so I ended up applying uh, to be a human development major um, because I always thought that uh, psychology was interesting and and also just uh, I think I was interested in seeing how people think. I think it was also from my experience uh, at home uh, where my brother was going through a little bit more of an intense puberty while watching him rebel a little. <laughs> I, I think that I was just uh, intrigued by that as well. And so uh, I started off as a human development major, but um, at Cornell, there was this interesting thing where um, they actually gave you your first semester classes just to kind of help you feel less uh, intimidated when you're starting less things to do. You could always switch classes after starting. A lot of it was prereqs of the specific college you were in. And so I think that, but it was, uh, but you know, what, what you say is, is true in the sense that I somehow out of all the other human development majors, I was the only one that somehow was placed into this intro to policy analysis class, which honestly, because once again, my parents um, were Korean immigrants, we like never talked about government or policy or politics at all at home because they didn't really follow it. And so honestly, I didn't even know what policy was when I started taking the class. But then I, I loved the intro to policy class. And so um, within the first semester, I had switched to being a policy major. Um, and at the time, I was actually thinking about uh, potentially doing something in policy, whether going into doing government, government work in the government, making policies, or potentially law school. Um, going into Cornell, I was, I was, I had been thinking at the time going into medical school, um, and that was also part of the reason why I chose in human development. Like literally the development of one person, it like in a, in a like psychology sense or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of these things that, um, Cornell alumni make fun of because we have all these majors that like sound cool, but then actually you don't know what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> And so Cornell alumni will be like, oh, you know, one of those like majors. <laughs> but technically the policy major was also called policy analysis and management. Ooh. And I remember, sorry, there's a little bit of a tangent, but during my sophomore year, uh, they had sent out this survey to all the policy analysis majors being like, we're thinking about rebranding and changing the name so that it's more typical. So we could call it either public policy or policy analysis or you know anyway they gave us a couple options but then all the students decided that they didn't want or the majority didn't want to change it and keep it the same because they felt that it was um <laughs> they felt that it was like vague enough that they could talk about business stuff with the management part at interviews or like the policy part or you know they could kind of make it the way that you wanted it to um and so <laughs> ended up uh Wanting to keep it the same, but anyway. Uh, but yeah, so human development is is um, 
is both, well, so the intro to human development class I was placed in because I was initially a human development major uh, was literally um, physical human development. So at like six months, babies will like sit up. At like one month, they'll start like cruising and, you know, using like things to help them walk. And, you know, at like three years, they'll be able to like say three words or, you know, things like that. Um, but then there are also aspects of like psychological development um, as well. And so kind of, uh, so you have that in the intro to human development class. And then as you go on, there's, uh, it branches into kind of both physical, but mostly it ends up being like psychological development at different stages of human development, like whether it's adolescence or young adulthood or, you know, underneath aspects of the different, um, as well as the different theories of, of development. I will say that my brother uh, just had his first kid and I still remember <laughs> like uh, the baby milestones. <laughs> and so I want to just not just him, but actually uh, even in like medical school, because uh, in pediatrics, we have to know the baby milestones. It, it ended up being like helpful. And it's surprising that I still remember these like random milestones. But <laughs> is there anything like that in med school? There isn't like a specific human development class, but um, and in medical school, we end up talking a lot more about like the, I guess, physical basis of development more than psychological, whereas this major was a little bit more psychological. So although, you know, I think if you're doing a, a pediatric residency, those are, those are definitely things that you learn very quickly and, and need to know. So you were doing this human development major and thinking about policy. And at what point did you get interested in medicine? Yeah. So after switching to um, doing uh, switching to the policy analysis management major. Um, as I said, I ended up loving the major and I, and I graduated uh, as a policy major. And so I stuck through it the whole time and I really enjoyed all the classes. Um, and uh, I think around, that's right, between our freshman and sophomore year though, um, I was starting to think about how I wanted to apply the major um, in terms of jobs and what type of job I would be doing. So. I tried this like um, kind of externship, like a short, like two week thing uh, working in child policy, um, which was kind of helping write up like policy briefs, which I enjoyed, um, as well as trying to work uh, in the management side of the major. So I actually spent a summer in Korea, um, also just because I wanted to get, get back in touch with my Korean roots, but uh, I decided to work in like a sales department um, at, at, a, at a large hotel. Uh, so I tried the business aspect of it as well. But as I was trying different things, uh, I realized that I really missed um, that drive for medicine. I guess that, that a lot of that came from the fact that my aunt, uh, who I lived with, uh, she had actually been a nurse for many years in, in Korea. And that's how she initially came over because uh, in the 1980s, uh, there are these different times in history where there was a deficit of nurses in the U.S. and so they would recruit a lot of nurses from outside of the U.S. and so she was one of the nurses that came from Korea to work in the U.S. Uh, also to look for better opportunities and so she worked for a couple of years as a nurse uh, before doing this like this business venture with my dad and so growing up she was always the one around the house that people turned to if somebody like you know had a fever or you know whatever minor illnesses uh, happened growing up around the house and I just remember uh, being very uh, influenced by that. You know, whenever somebody was, was a sick at home, uh, she would be the one who kind of would bring over uh, like the Tylenol or 
you know, just have um, kind of like wet towels or you know, just taking care of the person. And I feel like that was something that I, I remember growing up thinking like, oh, that's what I want to do. And that desire to help people, I think, stuck with me. And uh, even from a young age, um, I had wanted to, I remember like the first thing I wanted to be was, I mean, this isn't something that I think it's like, as just easily said and done anymore. But at the time I, I was thinking that I just wanted to like, give up everything and go to some like poor country and, and be like a missionary and doctor and like help people out there. And so I think that all of those things did stay with me. So even though I switched to being a policy major and I ended up uh, leaving medicine for about a year or not thinking about it at least, um, after that year was over, uh, I started rethinking about the fact that those were the ideals that really drove me and, and uh, drove me to do kind of work hard in high school and also in college. And I started missing uh, that aspect of uh, that deeper drive that I felt like was a theme in, in, in my life. Um, and then I also reflected on the fact that like, why did I decide not to be a medicine? Partly it was because I really liked the policy uh, work and I thought that that was not compatible, which I later found that was not true since you know, knowing about health policy, education policy, it's very related to medicine these days, but also because my roommate was pre-med and he was like suffering a lot from his <laughs> initial <laughs> pre-med courses. And so uh, because of that, I was like, I don't know if I want to go through college kind of doing the pre-med courses and things like that. And so I ended up thinking like, okay, that's not what I want to do. I'll focus on other things that I that really interest me. Um, but then after reflection, once again, after first year, I realized, well, maybe I was just avoiding things because they seemed really hard or, or uh, maybe I was scared of them. I'm not sure. So uh, it made me re-explore the idea of doing medicine. And so because of that, um, you know, I initially worked at that at hotel in like the first month of that summer between first and second year. And then the second half, um, I decided to try working at a hospice. And that was kind of the idea behind um, trying to re-explore the idea of medicine and whether I'd be interested in it. And so I volunteered at a hospice uh, locally in New Jersey and uh, ended up being like a life change experience um, because at the time, I, Clearly, as you could tell, I was having a lot of different thoughts back then, <laughs> but um, I was thinking a lot about death as well. Um, and I realized that death was something that I uh, was one of the biggest things uh, in life that were not really uh, answered uh, for me. I don't know if it's still really answerable in a certain sense, but um, it was something that I was uh, afraid of. And so I decided that, well, I think if I wanna try exploring healthcare, I want to also confront this fear of death since working as a medical professional, that's something that I will be seeing often. And on a personal level, I also wanted to explore kind of what this fear was as well. And that's actually why I ended up deciding to volunteer at a hospice rather than, you know, in a typical emergency room or I don't know, in different places that you would think of uh, for people who are applying uh, to medical school. And so working at that hospice, um, I mostly worked with Kind of uh, visiting hospice nurses, but also some social workers, some chaplains. I would visit people's homes because it was a home-based hospice program. Um, I just remember it being like a extremely moving experience where some of these nurses, the chaplain, social workers, um, they would be able to help accompany a patient at the end of life, um, but be able to help them uh, reconcile um, things from their life. So one particular patient I remember, I went to go see with a chaplain, for example. 
and um, you know they were just talking and he was able to bring out kind of um, out of her the fact that she um, hadn't spoken with her brother in 20 years because of small fight that they had 20 years ago that she honestly didn't even remember what it was about but now she had this terminal cancer and she only had a couple months left to live and she was saying how that's one of her biggest regrets and so he was able to also help her find a place of forgiveness um, and also a desire for reconciliation and so um, the next time we had visitors she had reached out to her brother he had actually come visit her um, before she passed away anyway I, I thought that that's what the meaning of life is I mean I just felt that that was so deeply moving and I don't know if I necessarily found the answer to that fear of death during the, that, that time, but I found that that was something that I wanted to do, was to help people at the end of life um, find meaning there um, and to accompany their, them there. And that's what I uh, ended up applying to or inspiring me to apply to medical school for. It's interesting how an imminent death, like the idea of some, if someone tells you, you know, you're going to die in a week or like a few days or, or a few months, um, the idea of having an expiration date kind of kicks you into gear and ironically motivates you to live more with your life. It's like, it's the whole bucket list idea, right? Like, what do you want to do before you die? And um, it's ironic because at any given moment, we are all in the process of dying, but we don't really think about it until we know there's a certain timeline. Right. Yeah, and I think that it's not, I think that death is like the most powerful motivator in that sense, but I think it does stem from a larger idea of suffering. And for me, I think it comes from this idea of like, what is there, or is there even a meaning behind suffering? And I do think that that's a reason, or one of the major reasons for suffering is that it does help us to be able to think about uh, what is most important in my life in a deeper deeper way. You know, the reasons why people, that might happen to people, you know, are, are many. And you know, I'm sure you, as well as anybody who's listening to this podcast, has had moments in their life where there was just uh, a particular difficulty or um, perhaps in a relationship or, or just like a physical ailment or whatever that might be that put us through a really hard time. And a lot of us probably would say that we came out of that, you know, changed or that we had grown from it, or, you know, there are a lot of these word types of words that people use from difficult experiences. And I do think that suffering does bring out in us this deeper sense of uh, connection uh, with others and with ourselves, as well as a search for uh, meaning in the sense that it helps to clear away some of the, the things of daily existence. You know, when we're suffering, we can't be just busily going about our daily lives and the normal schedule of things that we're always doing, it kind of makes us take, you know, take a pause or, or put the brakes on and to re-examine uh, in the context and the lens of suffering, whether all of these things that we're doing really have meaning. And if not, what are the most meaningful things in our lives? And I think that death does that to a more acute degree because uh, coming with death, is the fact that there is oftentimes suffering, whether that's kind of a, a more physical pain or whether that's psychological pain of the fear of death or the imminence of death or whatever that might be. And I think that that does help people 
uh, to think about those things that are most important. And I found that that's the case in not just people who are imminently dying, but people who have also had like illnesses or, or other means of suffering where they re-examine their lives. And um, at least for me, I know that faith is a, an important part of my life. And at least in, in my faith, we often, uh, you know, I go on a prolonged retreat once a year. And during that retreat, um, we do like a silent retreat for a few days. And during the retreat, one of the themes that always comes up um, is the last things, you know, death and dying. And uh, the reason for that is uh, to try to put yourself in the place of somebody who might have only days or weeks, maybe even hours left. Even just placing yourself in that imaginary situation helps you at least think more about um, how I'm living my life now. And if I had limited time, how would I reprioritize my life that I would place what truly is most important first and whether I can try to live my life where my ideals about that align with the way that I'm living daily and where those things are not aligning and where I have to make fixes. Wow, that sounds like such a fruitful exercise for many of us to do. I should do that. Um, I mean, the exercise of thinking about, you know, if you had one week left feels kind of grim, but the it sounds like what you get out of it is a way to recenter and reground yourself in your values. And I was actually listening to your new podcast where you talk a bit about this, um, you know, recentering and finding the values that you hold in your medical practice. Yeah, that's right. Um... Yeah, there are so many good points that you brought up, but uh, I'll take them one at a time. Well, I guess initially just the idea of, um, you know, when you're uh, kind of taking the time to refocus, I think is something that I think is super important, um, not just from a neurobiological standpoint. I think that uh, taking time for, for meditation, meditation and meditative practices does help activate uh, areas of the brain, like the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, more to help us more easily kind of attain or think about uh, ideals and those things that are more important, most important to us. And so for, for that reason alone, um, I think that meditative practices are very helpful, um, especially in the context of our culture today, where I think that um, there is a lot of uh, distraction and noise. Um, you know, every time, you know, even if you look around, every time there's a free Second, in the elevator, somebody will pull out their phone um, and scroll through Instagram or, you know, I mean, you see this all the time uh, whenever people are on the subway or, and I don't say this to be judgy because I, I sometimes fall into the same thing as well. Um, and I try to be very conscious of it and try to fight against it uh, because I do think that distraction does also prevent us or these types of distractions prevent us from thinking about those things, those things that are most meaningful in life. Um, you know, because when you find silence is when these big questions start coming up. Uh, and I think that if you don't allow for any silence in your life, um, then those questions can't come up. And then it's really hard to reprioritize your life. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think that these things can be grim uh, to think about. But one thing that's definitely uh, working in medicine has taught me is that, um, honestly, things happen to people. and they're unexpected. I mean, I've seen young people get into car crashes and then, you know, their lives be devastatingly changed or um, autoimmune 
diseases that leave somebody uh, just paraplegic or blind. I mean, these things can happen to anybody at any time. And it's not like you can necessarily predict when it happens to people. And so I do think that um, meditating on death, sometimes people have this sense, especially young people have the sense that like, I'm invincible and this won't happen to me. But being in the hospital has made me see that that's not the case. And so really thinking about the fact that tomorrow could be your last and living like that, I think is a good way of living um, so that you could always be prepared to make sure that if that ever does happen, that you know that you are living your life to the fullest and you know that you are living your life to the ideals that you wanted to live your life to. And it's part of the idea behind the podcast. Um, and thanks for bringing it up, Jane. Um, but there's this podcast that you know, a friend and I had just, just recently started called the Hippocratic Forum. And it stems from this idea that uh, last year I was um, in my first year of neurology residency, which is the second year of residency overall. Uh, since we do one year of internal medicine residency first. And uh, it was in, in the, the midst of uh, the initial COVID um, outbreak and things were really tough. Uh, I had volunteered to be on the COVID ICU and there were people who were dying. I was also working like a, a six weeks of like overnights, which is always like, um, I think mentally diff difficult as well. <laughs> when yeah, when you're working overnights, it's, uh, it's, it's more, it becomes even more mentally challenging. And um, I just remember during that time, uh, I was so tired. So like kind of sleep deprived from having my like clock switched around multiple times that I was having uh, these thoughts of, okay, like I came into work at 7 p.m., I get out at 7 a.m., I have 12 hours left. Okay, now I have 10 hours left. Now I have eight hours left. I was counting down the minutes until I, 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 could, I, had, I had to leave the hospital, as well as I had realized that I was approaching my day from a series of checkboxes. Um, you know, checkbox, I wrote this person's progress note, checkbox, checkbox, I updated, they updated their handoff, checkbox, I updated their family, et cetera. And so, and, and so I realized that um, there was a point where I felt really like tired and that work was weighing on me. And I was like, why is this happening? And I think that there are a lot of circumstantial things too, like COVID and you know, the difficulties of it. But I do think that I had kind of lost a sense of these ideals that we've been talking about, where there was a period of time where I was doing things to check off boxes rather than doing them for the reason why I went to medicine in the first place, which is a spirit of service, you know, desiring to serve other people, um, desiring to love my neighbor, you know, desiring to love the pe people and patients around me. And so if you end up do going from something with such high ideals that internally drive you to something where you're checking off checkboxes and not even thinking about the person behind the checkboxes, then you can imagine that that could be really tiring, you know? And I mean, medicine, I think, is the easiest place to be able to rediscover ideals because you're working with real suffering human beings. But I do believe that this type of approach can be used in any type of work, um, that this rediscovery of ideals and that you could transform your work into not just clicking off checkboxes, but doing your work in a spirit of these ideals. And so I wanted to apply those you know, practices to medicine and help my colleagues with whom I've been having a lot of these conversations about this idea of, um, kind of burnout in medicine and why it's happening. Um, and there are external factors that I can't control. You know, there are hospital factors, there are financial factors. Those are all things I've 
a resident's control. But I realized that there are internal factors that can be controlled, and those were the factors that I wanted to help other people develop uh, some of these ways in which they could encounter challenges and see them as opportunities. And so that's the idea of the end of Hippocratic Forum is like it's a series of podcasts, as well as we have this section of the website um, called The Forum, um, where people are starting to contribute. And I'm going through different essays now, actually, um, different essays on kind of how they have rediscovered ideals or the importance of ideals in medicine. And so it's a forum where people can come and read uh, other people's thoughts and writings and leave with a little bit more of a sense of hope in their work um, is kind of mm-hmm. the hope behind it. Yeah, yeah um, I, I have a few medical resident friends in my circle and just talking to them and this from the small sample size, it's clear that many of them are burnt out. I mean, the way that med school is set up in the U.S. and Canada with these crazy long hours and intense pressure, I'd be surprised to meet a resident who isn't burnt out. So I think this kind of forum and um, and platform is totally necessary. So kudos to you guys for doing that. Um, speaking of writing, you've written some published articles as well, uh, especially last year at the start of COVID uh, when you were working in palliative care and talking about you know how end-of-life care was being affected by COVID and the new restrictions in the hospitals. And I remember reading your article in the New York Daily News where you talked about this patient, Mrs. A, um, and you clearly have this special connection with her. And the word that comes to mind is care. You know, you clearly have so much care and empathy for the patients that you work with. And I was wondering if you could give us a little summary of uh, of your interactions with that patient, as well as, you know, over the course of COVID and the last year, uh, have you seen changes in hospitals improving their end-of-life practices? You know, I just wanted to say that uh, though I talk about these ideals, obviously I'm not a superhuman. And so there are times where I can't meet up these ideals as well, you know, match up to these ideals. Um, but I think that the whole idea behind uh, striving for ideals is that we want to always try to have a means in which we're looking for challenges and, and transferring them into opportunities and also being forgiving with oneself. Uh, you can't always uh, have every perfect patient interaction. But the idea behind it is that you're always trying to and that's the important thing is that you know when you fall down you don't just stay down but you you get up and, and especially when it's for an ideal it's easier to get up um and so yeah there it was it's similar with this patient who i was taking care of back uh, a couple different months and um it was something that i was noticing uh, at the time where we were having the initial COVID surge i think things have changed a bit now and hospitals are 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 better at finding this balance, but at the time, whenever patients were hospitalized, whether it was for COVID or not for COVID, um, they weren't allowed to have any visitors. And this was a really difficult time, I think, for families um, because of the fact that even patients who died, if they were flagged uh, in the electronic health record as COVID risk, which means that uh, they didn't actually test positive for COVID or they might not have yet, but that they came in with things that were concerning for COVID, whether that was like a CT scan of the chest that looked like what we call like ground glass opacities. So 
concerning for some type of viral respiratory illness. And so until known otherwise, then they would be kind of put under a COVID risk, which is it's good, you know, in, in the sense that like it helps the healthcare professionals taking care of them because then they know that when I go into the seeds patient, even though I don't know if they have COVID yet, I'm going to do all the precautions of the N95 mask, you know, like mask, goggles, everything, right? Like taking care of the patient. But um, because of the precautions uh, being taken, uh, these patients were also not allowed to have any visitors, including after they died. Um, and I remember one particular instance where um, I was, uh, there was an unfortunate circumstance where a patient ended up suddenly dying from, from respiratory distress uh, while I was taking care of them. And, um, and she was doing kind of better, although tenuously better over the past, past few days. And so when I had to call the son to let him know that she had suddenly passed away, uh, you could imagine that that was like an extremely difficult conversation and that he was completely distraught. Yeah. And um, he said that, you know, this was at like midnight. And so, you know, I told him that he shouldn't come in right away because, you know, especially with an emotional uh, thing like this, uh, it might not even be safe to drive. And he was from fairly far away. Um, and so he agreed and decided to come in in the morning. Uh, and this was, you know, completely my fault as well, because I didn't know this policy, but I didn't know that he actually couldn't even visit because his mother was uh, flagged as a COVID risk. Um, and so the next morning, um, uh, I was told by, by the nursing manager that this was the case. Um, and so I had to call him back and tell him that he actually couldn't visit his mother after she passed, which was an extremely difficult thing to do. And um, and I, I mean, it did make me question a little bit whether that was necessary. Um, you know, I, I don't say this to kind of just criticize because obviously making these policies are really difficult at the hospital level and they're, they're trying to do this in order to help uh, protect the hospital workers. And so, I mean, I'm all for that. But it did make me think, rethink about the framework in which we're approaching COVID and whether um, we are truly thinking about um, how, what is best for kind of human flourishing, you know, human development, like what is most meaningful in life. And the reason why I was thinking about these things too is that you know, we talked about my grandma in the beginning, but my grandma passed away during this first wave of COVID, not from COVID, but uh, from a separate illness. And um, it made me think about how leading up to her death, um, I couldn't visit her, I didn't see her. Um, even if I did see her, it was like, you know, from her sitting in the car and me outside uh, through some barrier. And, um, and, you know, arguably my grandmother was a pretty stoic woman, but um, arguably I think that she probably would have rather that I just, you know, held her and, and hugged her and um, you know, was with her uh, prior to passing away uh, rather than um, kind of being at a distance like that. Um, and, you know, I don't know for sure, we didn't actually talk about it, but uh, it just made me think about um, you know, the way in which we're approaching COVID, where uh, sometimes we are prioritizing purely lives saved over anything else. And sometimes I do wonder if there needs to be a little bit more of a nuanced discussion about um, these types of things, uh, what is what people personally also find most important in their lives and meaningful. And there's also been 
a big surge in kind of suicides during this time too. And so I do think that there are other areas that people are suffering and, and having a difficult time. And so I had a lot of those different types of reflections and that's what prompted me to write this, um, this article on loneliness because it did also make me think about whether there were ways about uh, in which we could approach it where I mean, whether it's um, allowing at least family members uh, whose, whose, uh, whose loved ones have passed away to perhaps at least go in with using some of the, the PPE. And I know that we were at a PPE shortage. So once again, easier said than done. And there are a lot of different factors again. And I think the hospital is doing its best in that. So I, I'm not once again criticizing the hospital, but um, just thinking about ways in which we could also prioritize a little bit more that human aspect of illness um, and how that could be done best. And I do think that the second round um, that has been done better. And I do think that the hospitals um, are trying to balance that more. And I do appreciate that. And I do think that the first round of COVID was more because it totally caught us off guard. And it was just this like very severe thing that was happening. And, and we didn't really know what to do or how to prepare or even what to do when I was here. And so I think that those were difficult things, but um, but I continue to kind of think about and reflect on ways in which we could try to maintain that human aspect. And that does tie into this idea of, of palliative care because, um, you know, in the end, I'm interested in palliative care because in a certain sense, I do feel like palliative care, um, which is this focus on symptom management rather than uh, curing patients, um, but accompanying patients through managing physical, mental, but also spiritual symptoms uh, and severe illnesses um, is a, in a certain sense a rediscovery of the of medicine, I think, the heart of medicine, um, where medicine has evolved now a lot to uh, curing, but less caring um, in a lot of circumstances. And I do think that palliative care is in a certain sense a movement back to that focus on caring um, and accompanying the patient. Which, uh, which we have lost. And I think that there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Um, partly, I do think that the division of, at some point, uh, the profession of like doctor and nurses where nurses were given the task of caring in a certain sense, and doctors were given the task of thinking and treating. Um, and I did think that, that that perhaps has played a role in this kind of division of responsibilities which I don't think should have necessarily happened in the, in the area of caring, you know, for the patient. I do think that that should be maintained by both professions. Um, but that, uh, that this, uh, this move of palliative care is to help medicine rediscover that. Um, because in a certain sense, in the palliative care field, there's this kind of debate as to if palliative care is super successful in the sense that it helps doctors have these serious illness conversations and helps have these doctors have these goals of care conversations well, symptom management well in all these different areas. Um, you know, if palliative care is successful, should it, be extinct, should it become extinct, right? Because then it shouldn't really be needed anymore if all the doctors are doing it. I think probably not in the sense that like, I think there, there are still specialists who need to train other people on how to do this well, but I do think that everybody should be doing palliative care uh, at, at, at the core, which is you know, focusing on those things that matter most um, to the patient and, and directing their care, care with that goal in mind. Yeah, you mentioned a couple terms that I find really interesting. 
One is this dichotomy you mentioned about curing versus caring. And I had never thought about it this way, but there is sort of this connect, uh, this connection to this professional split between doctors and nurses. Um, so that's, that's quite fascinating. The other term that you use that I haven't, I, I can't say I've heard another doctor use is flourishing. You know, what if we were to optimize for human flourishing over number of lives saved? What might that look like? Um, and of course, not to diminish the importance of saving lives, but, you know, taking into account some of the other factors of being human. I'd first love to know if we were to bring these ideas to some of your colleagues at the hospital, how many of them do you think would agree with the way you think? And I do want to mention, you know, like during this time, like you and all our frontline workers, doctor, nurses, everyone working in healthcare, like you guys really are doing the Lord's work. And I mean that literally too, right? Because I know that faith is a big part of your life. And I want to hear a bit about how you see faith tying into your work, and into your practice. Yeah, uh, I do think that in some senses, um, a lot of my colleagues would probably uh, agree with this. Um, I think that it's a nuanced discussion, right? Because you also want to save lives. So I don't think that lives saved is always against human flourishing. Um, but I do think that there has to be a little bit more of a uh, sense of um, kind of thinking about the latter a little bit more. Um, and I think that that's, this is part of palliative medicine too, is that in palliative care, we approach the patient, uh, oftentimes palliative care specialists, when they first come in to see a patient, um, you know, the typical thing for a medical doctor to, to do is, uh, you know, chief complaint, like cough. And so being like, all right, like, tell me about your cough. Like how, how, how many weeks, like how severe, is it worse when you're lying down? Are you having other symptoms with it, like fevers, chills, whatever that might be, right? Um, but a palliative care specialist might enter the room and be like, hi, uh, this is A, uh, I'm Dr. Ree, and um, I'm here to help you with your symptoms of your cough, which has been really bothering you. But can you first just tell me about who you are and, and you know, where you're from, what you do, like what's the most important thing in your life? You know, I mean, these are the types of things or the types of discussions that um, people who are specialized in palliative care have where they try to know the person first uh, before their illness. And then from there, be able to guide their discussion of the illness. Because maybe the cough has to do with the fact that this person has stage four lung cancer, right? And if that's the case, then the discussion of who this person is really does relate to what treatment they want because maybe they don't want chemotherapy because that's you know there are a lot of side effects with that maybe they just want to optimize the time the pain the symptoms the shortness of breath that they have uh, while spending a few more months with their grandchildren you know i mean so, and and those things are really important and once again in that setting i think that palliative care doctors would you know agree with me in the sense that like we're not thinking purely about lives saved. We're thinking about this person, who they are and what their goals are and what's most meaningful to them. And we want to try to optimize them and use medicine as a tool for doing that, you know, helping people live, uh, lift the rest of their time um, that they have uh, to in, the, in a way that in which they find most meaningful. Um, and sometimes that's the work of a doctor or um, is to also 
try to help patients discover um, you know, what is most meaningful. Perhaps that is maybe where I, I might diverge a little bit from, um, from traditional medical practices. And I think that my faith uh, does play a role in that. I think we discussed the fact that suffering, for example, is a key reason what, that drew me to medicine as well. This idea of suffering and wanting to try to understand it. It's also one of the reasons that drew me to neurology because I thought that neurology um, does have a particular type of suffering uh, when people lose a sense of uh, being able to speak or see or move. I think that that brings with it a certain sense of a crisis of identity um, that is a particular type of suffering that is very difficult, um, especially because people with neurologic diseases don't pass away right away. And so they have to learn uh, to live with oftentimes these very severe disabilities. Um, but I do think that that is the role of the doctor, not, not purely to treat the physical, um, but to also try to identify and help patients identify what is meaningful in their lives and to also help align their goals to that. Because um, in our current system in medicine, at least in the US, and I find that this is culturally different in different countries, um, but we have a very strong swing towards patient autonomy. Um, so the patients should ultimately decide uh, what they want out of their medical care. And that sounds really good. And in a certain sense, it is good. And it is a good that we move more towards autonomy than a purely paternalistic medical system, because that was also bad. Um, but the problem with the pure kind of focus on patient autonomy is that patients cannot have the same amount of medical knowledge that you have. And so if a patient is in, uh, you know, has like a huge stroke and the patient's family is asking you what they should do, they're really asking you what they should do because you know you have seen hundreds of stroke patients and you have seen their, the whole variation of outcomes and you have seen the risks of starting certain medications or certain procedures versus not. And it's almost impossible for that family member to weigh all of those experiences in themselves and make a decision. And so, you know, I do think that, um, you know, we've had such a strong swing towards patient autonomy. And I do think that we are trying to kind of starting to like uh, balance back out towards the center, uh, which I think is good um, because of the fact that that's the point of you being a doctor is that these patients and their families are turning to you for your expertise and your experiences to help guide them in their decision based on the fact that you also need to know then what is most important for them. Because the choices are, there are always a lot of choices that you can make in medicine. And it's always not clear what the best choice is, even from just purely a medical standpoint. There are, there are weighing risks and benefits of starting some blood thinner versus not in the setting of a stroke because you could bleed, but you could help the patient. I mean, there, there are a lot of different discussions that, that can be had, but in the end, uh, a lot of it depends on like, what are the values and what's important to the patient. And so I think in a certain sense, it's up to the doctor to navigate uh, and understand what was what were those values for the patient and then help that patient and the family make that decision based on uh, what those uh, what those things are. Um, and I do think that that does uh, the, the, the aspect of faith does play a big role in that because um, I do think that one, um, faith has taught me that um, every person uh, is an individual. Um, and every person is somebody that I should see uh, God uh, within. And so that makes me, or reminds me constantly, even when I'm tired, even when I'm exhausted from a 28 hour shift, 
that this is another human being and that I need to still try to uh, discover the fact that this is a unique life and help them find meaning. And also in the sense that, um, you know, in my faith journey, uh, I have found that it has helped me find meaning in my life. And so I do feel like if that's a case for me, then I want to help other people also find a deeper sense of meaning in their lives, whatever that might be. And in a certain sense, I feel that that is my responsibility, not just as a person of faith, but also in my profession as a doctor as well. One thing that's clear to me listening to you talk is you've thought so much about this, not just on a professional level, but on a personal level in how you bring your ideals to work and how you care for patients as human beings. I would love to think that all doctors give this much thought into their work. I'm not sure if that's the case. Um, But another topic that you've written a lot about is around physician-assisted suicide. I'm not sure if that's the same thing as euthanasia, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how you think your opinions differ from maybe how the mainstream medical field would think about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a topic that I feel very passionately about, mostly because of my uh, passion for, for palliative care and what I think it can do. Um, so it's a good question. Physician-assisted suicide is mostly a, a, uh, a concept in the U.S., whereas euthanasia is mostly a concept in other parts of the world, mainly Europe, um, as well as Canada, because um, physician-assisted suicide basically is where the doctor prescribes uh, a medication and then the patient uh, can take that medication and then take it when they want at home. Or, um, and, and the idea is that it would bring on death. Um, whereas euthanasia is that the patient makes a decision and um, uh, the administration of the medication is in the hands of the doctor. Um, or sometimes the patient actually doesn't make the decision, which is why I think euthanasia especially can be very dangerous because there are a percentage of cases of euthanasia where um, the patient is not identifiable or it's unclear. And so um, and that's in that setting, the doctor makes the decision of whether the patient is euthanized or not. But in the US, uh, because of the fact that, um, you know, we are very focused on this idea of autonomy, the discussions are mostly around physician-assisted suicide rather than euthanasia. For me, um, I think that there's been a lot of research that shows that palliative care is not fully available uh, in the US still. There are still many areas, especially rural areas where palliative care is not uh, a specialty that people even have real access to. And when people are talking about physician-assisted suicide, the thing that they are most often concerned about is this idea of whether uh, they will have intractable pain at the end of life and whether that would be a reason to take their own lives. And uh, I think that without having widely available palliative care, we can't have that discussion because if we're having truly good palliative care, then we should not be having intractable pain at the end of life. And so we should be focusing on making palliative care more available to people uh, on a wider level, including people who are having intractable pain. And the more that we focus on having a pill be the solution you know, to somebody who is having pain at the end of life, the less we will invest in the fact that we really need this type of care for people at the end of life. I, I preface this by saying also that like, 
these are decisions that are really hard. So once again, I don't mean to talk about physician-assisted suicide as this like really easy decision. You should not take a pill and that's it. Um, you know, I personally know of people who have had really agonizing decisions where family members requested this um, and that uh, this was something that was really hard and a discussion with the family and there are a lot of emotions involved. And especially with this area of death, uh, I want to make sure that you know, that people know that this is not an easy decision uh, either way, you know, whatever the decision ends up being. And so we always have to, once again, see the patient for who they are. Uh, where is the source of their suffering, especially? Um, because I have found in my personal experience that a lot of times when people request assisted suicide, and this is not just my personal experience, actually, but also research shows that uh, most of the times it does not have to do with intractable pain. Most of the time it has to do with the fact that people uh, feel a sense of loss of dignity, for example, when they're no longer able to kind of wash themselves or go to the bathroom themselves. And then the sense of feeling like a burden, uh, like they are a burden on others. And this type of suffering, I think is what really underlies a lot of the physicians is the suicide debate. And I think that that's really telling because then I think that we should really think about as a society, why they feel that way, you know, and whether our society has certain norms um, of like of ableism, where you're only valued in society if you're able to do things, whether you're able to contribute monetarily or whether you're able to contribute anything really in, in a very kind of uh, materialistic sense to society that makes you useful and that once you're not doing that you feel like you're just a parasite on society and that then you should no longer desire to live and I do think that that's very problematic because uh, I mean people who are suffering are still can still be a, a means in which we ourselves as a society learn deeper as we've been talking about today about the meaning of life even and I often tell my patients who are suffering um, or who feel like that they're, they're a burden. In fact, I had this patient a couple months ago who told me, who actually asked me this question. Uh, he said, Dr. Ree, do you think I should die? Because uh, now that I have this brain cancer, I feel like I will just become a burden on my daughter and I don't want that. But at the same time, I love her so much and I don't want to be taken away from her prematurely. You know, I want to spend time with her, but I don't want to be a burden on her. So do you think I should die? And man, what a discussion. Um, but what I told them is that you don't need to feel like uh, in a certain sense, you know, you will become weaker. In a certain sense, your daughter will require uh, to help you more, more. And as time passes, this will become probably more and more difficult for your daughter. But you have to remember that no matter what, at any point in your life, uh, you are still that same person that your daughter loves. And also that by allowing her to take care of you, you're still helping her grow in a sense of love for you, uh, grow in certain even values or virtues uh, where it's helping her grow in a sense of service herself uh, to be able to love her father in the same way that her father loved her when she was a baby and helpless and took complete care of her. And this idea in society that, you know, we should still uh, see people who are suffering or people who are sick as needed members of our society, I think is a really important thing 
not to discard them. And I, this is like a whole topic that I feel is much larger ranging, um, you know, including the idea of like nursing homes and having people kind of be separated from society, elderly or people who are uh, immobile or, or whatever the reasons might be being in nursing homes. And in a certain sense, us feeling safe about that because we no longer visibly see them. And so we don't see, uh, you know, their daily um, what they're going through. And in a certain sense, that helps us because it prevents us from thinking about their suffering and, and removes them from society. And once again, I don't want, I don't mean for this to sound you know, heartless because uh, I think that there are definitely uh, difficult uh, things in society that has made this happen, like financial structures that require that like family members can't take care of loved ones at home because of the fact that it's just like impossible to, and you know, all of these other reasons, then, then we need to really think about why those structures are in place and like how we can, you know, change those things so that people can do that. People can like be with their loved ones and you know, whether we should think about then like how, you know, focusing on like whether resources should go in a certain sense to help people be able to, to do that, you know, rather than kind of having the separate facility do that, you know. And so anyway, I, I think that it's like a larger kind of societal qu question that I have about like how we treat the elderly, how we treat the sick, and that kind of playing a role in um, how people uh, think about themselves uh, when they are quote unquote disabled. And I think for this reason too, a lot of the uh, groups that are against this idea of assisted suicide are actually uh, disability advocacy groups because you know they do make this argument that sure, I have this disability and you are making this argument that um, you cannot live with this disability and so you would rather die, um, but that I find my life really, really meaningful and that we have to show society that you could still be really, really, uh, that life can be really, really meaningful, despite the fact that um, there are disabilities that happen in our lives. And so, I, I mean, I think for all these reasons, but really also, I think we need very good palliative care before we even have the discussion of assisted suicide. And I think that's really important because then we should have this kind of this, uh, service in place where we explore not just the physical pain issue, but the other issues that I find really moving in palliative care, which is finding and being with the person for where, at where they are in that moment in their life and, and helping them discover like what is the most meaningful thing to them there and then revolving their care around that. Um, I think that that type of care is first needed to be widely available before we have that discussion about assisted suicide. Yeah, absolutely. This was a really enlightening foray into, into your mind and, and how you think, but I think your heart as well, because like so much of how you think about this is, is tied into um, the humanity aspect, um, right? And I was actually picturing my grandmother as you were talking about this, who's, oh gosh, she's like probably about 95 at this point. Um, and for her age, I mean, she's doing pretty well, although she has arthritis and can't move uh, really on her own and, you know, needs help with, uh, with most things. Um, and when you brought up the money thing, it's very relevant because like she, um, I mean, in a way she's dependent on her kids to support her. So she has a caretaker and, and uh, previously she, you know, either lived with our family or with my aunt's family. Uh, but at one point, you know, she said, you know, like, I don't want to be a burden on you guys physically. So I'll just go live on my own. But, you know, she still needs someone, you know, with her to help her, you know, 
cook and go to the bathroom and things. Um, but you know, she'll always say like, Oh, like I should just go soon because like, I, like I'm essentially like using up financial resources and that's heartbreaking to hear. Right. Um, I mean, it's complicated for me because I physically can't even see her right now. She's in China. Mm -hmm. Um, but of course I, I do want the opportunity to see her that's selfish on my part as a family member. Um, it, you know, if she is suffering and she does, you know, want to end her life, which I hope is not the case, but you know, it's, it's complicated. Like there's all these factors and so many opinions involved and money involved. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Um, right. I, I do have two questions for you though. One, mm -hmm. uh, I should have asked this at the beginning, but can you um, help me define maybe, uh, you know, what, what's the kind of whole system of palliative care and, and when does a patient go from another department into palliative care? And then my other question's a little deeper, but like, these are really heavy conversations, right? To, to be had on, on a daily or weekly, or I don't know how often they come up, come up in your work, but I'm guessing pretty frequently. Um, is how do you kind of take in all that and still maintain your sanity? <laughs> you know, like, do you compartmentalize, uh, you know, with your work versus your personal life? It sounds like there's a lot of overlap, but how do you kind of sit with all of this and, and be okay and <laughs> functional as a human being yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I just want to say that, Jane, you're, thank you for sharing that story with you know, what your grandmother is going through, because I do think that that especially highlights the complexity of the decision-making process for families and how difficult that can be, uh, both for the patient, you know, who's suffering and also for the suffering members of the family. And so um, once again, I, I just want to stress that, you know, obviously I say my views because I feel strongly about them, but I don't forget the fact that these are individual level decisions and there are individual level factors and there's a lot of you know, difficulties around making these decisions and that the job of the clinician also is to accompany people through that um, and to help them through that and, and sorting out all of those things and, and to not abandon them in that setting, you know. Um, yeah, palliative care is, it's, it's actually, um, it's historically, uh, it's been around for you know, many hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, probably we could trace it back to kind of the medieval times where there was these uh, monks and nuns who were running like hospitals or hospices uh, where they had some medical training and also like nursing training. And they were the idea of this medicine nurse who were caring for the patients, um, but also treating them at a time where there weren't that many treatments available. And so people would oftentimes come to these like kind of uh, houses that were associated with these like monasteries and sometimes just to die there um, and, and they would be taken care of by, by these people who had kind of given up their lives to, to serving others. Right? Um, but it became more of an academic field, I guess, more recently. Um, and the person who really championed them, uh, that was uh, Dr. Uh, Dame Cicely Saunders, um, who was actually a nurse by training and a social worker by training and a doctor by training. Uh, in the UK. So she actually was all three of those things. Um, and I think that that's why she was such a great example of um, a, an advocate for palliative care because she, palliative care in the end is about all of these different disciplines coming together in the care of the patient and that 
not one is more important than the other, as sometimes happens in the hospital, where sometimes like doctors are seen as more important than other fields. Um, and so she, and she really thought that each played a unique role in, in this whole you know, system of, of medicine, and that that was really important. Um, but she made it more of an academic process, practice where she kind of initially started uh, working at a hospice in the UK, um, and then she ended up developing more of kind of like an academic practice uh, of palliative care, um, where she helped run um, a, a standalone uh, hospice, um, and then also through it, it grew into kind of doing more research and academic work in palliative care as well. And so the idea behind palliative care uh, is slightly different, uh, you know, in different places. But overall, the, the idea behind uh, palliative care is to is the focus on symptom management um, for a patient's care, whether that be physical, mental, or spiritual. Um, and so then you could imagine that um, palliative care actually, you don't have to necessarily transition the care to palliative care uh, at any point, that palliative care can accompany a patient uh, side by side with another doctor. So for example, heart failure patients have a limited lifespan, they have high mortality, um, even though on a daily basis, you might not think that this person, you know, has like a restricted life just by seeing them. But um, but palliative care might uh, co-manage patients with heart failure. So the cardi cardiologist is managing the patient's heart failure. And then the palliative care doctor might be helping uh, by helping especially management with possibly shortness of breath sy symptoms that might be uh, difficult to control. Um, and so palliative care can actually be at any point in a patient's care. And uh, there is an actual, um, uh, there's a, a physician at, at Mass General, uh, Jennifer Timmel, um, who is uh, known for a landmark paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at early palliative care in patients with non-small cell lung cancer, where uh, she saw that patients who had early palliative care, shockingly, uh, they followed them with palliative care intervention early on versus no palliative care intervention. And the, those who had palliative care intervention early on actually had a longer lifespan than patients who did not, which was like a super shocking thing for the medical community. It was like, what happened here? And part of the answer probably has to do with the fact that, I mean, chemotherapies are toxic. And so they, they, they sometimes do shorten a patient's lifespan. Um, but there's a question of whether there's something kind of uniquely different of the approach of palliative care, helping people find that meaning or you know, whatever that might be, maybe it's the focus on symptom management rather than actual the cure that sometimes made people like live longer. Um, and so that actually has been replicated in different disease processes as well. Um, and so that has advocated for the fact that palliative care should be involved earlier in people's care. But the problem, the reason why sometimes they're not is more because of the fact that there's still a little bit of stigma around palliative care um, that, uh, you know, if you consult a palliative care doctor, that means that the patient is dying, um, which is not true, but that stigma exists and that misconception exists both on the part of the families as well as on the part of the doctors. And so still that is a big barrier to palliative care getting involved. And that is kind of just a brief aside. One of the reasons why I'm also worried about assisted suicide is because right now the physicians who are responsible when people consult a physician for physician-assisted suicide is often the palliative care doctors because they're the most experts at the end of life. Um, but I think that that's super confusing for patients if there's somebody that they're consulting that could also 
potentially be prescribing something to take somebody's life away as well as somebody who's trying to also just help people find like the meaning at the end of life. And so I think that that could be potentially detrimental to just palliative care as a field too of, of while we're trying to like recuperate this, like taking away the stigma aspect of palliative care unintentionally also kind of having this um, stigma associated with it because one of the stigmas associated with palliative care is that it's like the death doctor um, when the do other doctors have given up on the patient, which once again is not the case as we can see from early palliative care interventions. Um, and so uh, because of that, um, there's a little bit of a distinction in the US, mostly because that stems a lot from like um, differences in uh, how funding works, once again, talking about funding, but the last, if, some, if a doctor says that a patient has an estimated six months left to live, um, then a person can be covered uh, in terms of Medicare for hospice care. Um, so hospice care specifically is when you have an estimated six months or less to live. And that, that distinction of how many months estimated to live actually varies a little bit by, by country. And so in the US, that's the case, um, but in other countries that, that might not be a six months. Um, and so, um, and that's why I say funding because it's mostly derived from the funding aspect of Medicare and how they fund the last six months of life. And so um, sometimes people like group palliative care and hospice together. Um, in other countries, that's not the case. Um, they kind of uh, have that separately. Um, and in, in some countries, they, it's kind of like uh, synonymous too, uh, also from like a policy standpoint. And so because of that, there's like legally or like reimbursement wise, palliative care sometimes like has different definitions in different countries. But the overall idea is, is symptom management and symptom control um, at the end of life. And then I think your second question had to do with, you know, how to have these like difficult conversations. And yeah, I think that a lot of times these types of conversations uh, can be fairly heavy. Um, I've personally found that though, and I think a lot of other, I'm, I mean, to clarify, I'm not a palliative care specialist. I am just very interested in this. I, and I do, so I do research in it, but I'm still a resident. So I haven't uh, gotten like fellowship training in palliative care. Um, but I try to use the palliative care tools that I've learned over the years for my interests in my, in my daily practice. Um, but, but I think that a lot of palliative care doctors will tell you the same thing, uh, that they, though these conversations are difficult, uh, they actually find much more meaning in these conversations. And I do think that this ties back to the idea of ideals and that sometimes check boxes, even though you're doing more things, things in the day or um, can sometimes be more fatiguing um, when you don't have that drive of that ideal behind you. Whereas things that are much more seemingly difficult like conversations like these, um, but because are driven by a strong sense of inner ideals uh, can actually be less fatiguing and you can actually find a deeper sense of meaning in your work. And so I, 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 at least I think that that's how I felt about it is that I felt a deeper sense of meaning in my work through conversations like these. And so rather than weighing more on me, I find that it kind of uplifts me more knowing that I have touched on something that's like the most important thing to the patient and knowing that I, that's what I'm working towards. And so I do have ways in which outside of the hospital, I, I kind of make sure that I process these things because I do think that, that uh, when you're having such deep conversations with any other human being, you also need time for processing. Um, and so I have a series of kind of practices that I do you know, every morning, for example, I do have a set you know, 30 minutes of meditation as well as 30 minutes in the afternoon. I, I do that every day. 
um, in order to also have time for just silence or finding silence. Um, and those are times where I often might process things that happened in the day. Um, and also times where I also bring my patients uh, outside of the hospital and into you know, the times of meditation and for me, prayer. So I often pray for my patients as well then. And so I find that that helps me a lot because uh, there are limits in medicine too. I can't always uh, you know, do what I want for the patient. I can't always meet the patient's expectations uh, or family's expectations. Sometimes families don't understand also that there are limits to medicine. Um, and oftentimes I find that more and more that, uh, you know, that, that there are a lot of limits to medicine and that I find that um, you know, outside the hospital when I pray for my patients, that's when I still feel like I'm still accompanying them uh, even if I'm not physically by their bedside. And so in that sense, I think that it also helps me uh, with a deeper, this deeper sense of uh, meaning as well um, by, by bringing them actually out of the hospital and into my personal life as well. This conversation has, has felt cathartic for me. Um, I, don't, I, I don't talk about these um, topics very often. I mean, they don't really come up in day to day um, obviously, I don't work in the medical field. So like from a professional standpoint, I'm very distant to it. But it is uh, it's nice to be able to talk to someone at this depth and really explore, you know, certain aspects of it, because I think like especially in Western culture, we're so scared of death. You know, we put it away, we cover it up. And, uh, you know, if you go to a funeral, it's like the and it's an open casket they you know like put on makeup and all the things to to kind of like make death go away so it's it's uh yeah it's it's kind of cathartic to talk about it in in a real way yeah thanks for giving me the opportunity jane i mean these are topics that i like love to talk about so <laughs> yeah, anytime well thank you so much john i know you're a busy doctor so i appreciate you coming on the podcast and and sharing some of your thoughts yeah, and thank you for for giving me the opportunity to do so, and and uh, and also, yeah, if you if anybody also has any kind of questions or wants to have any follow up discussions, people in the medical field or whatever, then uh, you could always feel free to reach out, and I love having these types of discussions, so I'd be happy to have those. Awesome. Yeah. Where can people find you? Yeah. So you could either email me. Uh, at dr.johnyrhee at gmail.com. That's just my personal email. Um, and then you could also check out uh, the Hippocratic Forum um, as well, uh, which is the project that we mentioned earlier. Um, check out the podcast, check out the forum articles. And, and there, there's also kind of an email uh, called the Hippocratic Forum at gmail.com, which you could also email and I also monitor that as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you made it to the end, I applaud you. I also would love to hear what you thought of this episode. I'll be posting some clips and quotes over on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. So you can find me there and I'd love to hear what you thought. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes every Tuesday and I will talk to you next week.